Hello, and welcome back to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. I'm your host, Joelle Maldonado, and I'm also known as the Grave Woman. I love having conversations that challenge my perspective, open my mind, and stretch the boundaries of my understanding, empathy, and compassion. One of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the past few years through hosting conversations about race and death is that it's okay to not know everything and to make mistakes when trying to communicate thoughts, feelings, and just trying to learn with the intention of learning and growing. In this episode of the Death and Grief Talk podcast, I exchange with my death care colleague, Alexandra Joe about the nuances of identity while exploring the manners in which we can respect autonomy, properly use, properly use language, and how remaining curious impacts the way we honor one another, not only in life, but also in death. Alexandra Joe, how are you today? And welcome to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. Thank you so much. I'm doing so great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. So yeah, I've been looking forward to it. Um, thank you for having me on. Of course. Um, so for those of you who don't know Alexandra Joe, I met Alexandra at online, at online. I met you at online. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I met Alexandra Joe online in 2020. And I've kind of been like fanning over her for the past going on three years. And we had the amazing opportunity to meet at NFDA last year in October in person and finally, and you do so many amazing things that we're, I want you to go ahead and tell us about, but I want to make sure that we talk about something you shared with me just a few moments ago, which is coming out as non-binary because just now trying to develop the sentence to describe how I met you, I almost said her, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. though you just said that you use Mm -hmm. they, them pronouns. But Mm -hmm. before we get into that, just tell those that may not be familiar in YouTube land and in podcast land who you are. Great. Yeah. Like you said, I'm Alexandra Joe. I am the director of outreach and education at a death tech startup here in Santa Fe, New Mexico called Parting Stone. So that means I do all of our um, like educational outreach. I give presentations at conferences, at death conferences and grief and wellness conferences around the country. Um, I make YouTube videos. I do my own podcast, which um, is called Death Care Decoded. And we're actually about to rebrand. So I can talk about that too. We're about to rebrand it under the death curious name, which is what I run socials under. And yeah, I'm, I am extremely death curious and yeah, I am an out and proud, um, queer non-binary death care professional. Um, and I'm a certified celebrant. I got certified last year through the insight Institute with Glinda Stansbury, which was really awesome. Um, yeah. And I just love talking about all things death and dying and how we can make the space better. So definitely. Well, let's jump in because I I am definitely following your death curious page on social media and I saw a video that you did on TikTok about things we didn't know about being LGBTQI+ plus mm-hmm. in death care. And I found that video to be so important and so powerful 
because I learned very quickly in mortuary school that a lot of the people that I went to school with identified as something other than heterosexual, even if they didn't have a name for it. And it was almost like this secret that nobody was supposed to know because it would challenge their ability to get jobs in the profession, to be taken seriously, or just like personal fears and insecurities that they had around stigmas, around sexuality and identity. So what gave you the courage not only to come out and say, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, and this is what I believe and how I identify, but how did that translate into you creating a safe space for others? Oof. Okay. There's, this is going to be a long answer. So <laughs> just strap in. I mean, I've, I have always known that I was different. You know, I was raised in Alabama in a very conservative, but loving family, but it was pretty clear, made pretty clear, like my, my mother and my father and my grandparents views on homosexuality. And, you know, that was in the nineties and early two thousands. And we did not have language for genderqueer, non-binary. Um, it wasn't until high school that I even discovered the word bisexual and was like, oh my God, I'm not broken. I don't have to choose one or the other. Right. Um, and even later in adulthood, I learned about pansexual because now we have more trans awareness and being able to be out even if I wasn't out amongst my family as a young person, being out amongst my peers and finding and building community, I truly believe saved my life as a young person. Uh, feelings of isolation, feelings of like something is wrong with me, not knowing, not getting the information that I needed, not knowing um, the language for and about myself and others. Um, yeah, having that community was really important and being out allowed me to have that community. And um and I think the same is true and really important in our adult lives and our professional lives. Um, it's not that we want to share, you know, the most intimate details of our personal lives with everyone, but, you know, heterosexual people are able to come to work and be like, oh, look at this picture of me and my wife, right? And no one thinks it's overtly sexual. No one thinks there's anything wrong with it you know, um, a queer couple should be able to have that same right and privilege to share their whole self at work in appropriate ways. Right. And particularly within the death care space, there are a lot of folks that fall under that LGBTQIA plus umbrella in this profession. And I noticed that when, as an out adult, I joined Parting Stone and we started realizing that we were hiring a lot of people who identified as queer or somewhere on that queer spectrum. And just really quick for listeners who may not be familiar, LGBTQIA+, or sometimes written 2S LGBTQIA+, um, stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, LGBTQ, uh, queer or questioning, I intersex, a asexual or aromantic, and then plus is all the other identities. And then if that two S is at the beginning, that means two spirit, which is what indigenous folks in the United States um, use as their term for queer. So I really love adding that in because especially, you know, living in New Mexico, um, adjacent to and in proximity to a lot of very thriving, wonderful indigenous populations. Um, it's really important to give those folks visibility too. Um, and on that note, I am on um, unceded Tewa, Tewa, Toa, and Terrace lands in Santa Fe right now. So just giving that an acknowledgement as well. Veering off the course, but so in death care, that um, that LGBTQIA plus umbrella encompasses a lot of people um, in the space. 
And I did some research because I was really curious about why that was like, why are queer, is it just a phenomenon that we're experiencing at parting stone? Is, is there a certain reason? Is, is this happening everywhere? And it's, it's true. I found a study from 2014, um, that was a survey of, uh, gay men and lesbian women employees. And it took data about what the most common jobs among them were, and then talked to them about why and figured out some reasons why they were drawn to those jobs. And Funeral director, death care professional was number 11 on the list of most common jobs for gay men and lesbian women. And again, this wasn't a super uh, gender inclusive study. It didn't include folks like myself who are non-binary, genderqueer um, or trans, but it still gave us a lot of data about those two very large, the most well-known populations and well-understood populations in that, that queer umbrella. And the, the reasons they found that jobs on that list were really popular were for two reasons. Um, one of them was they require a high amount of emotional intelligence to excel at. And we can understand that that would be true for funeral directors, right? Like you need to be able to read the room to know if a family is able to talk to you or having conflict and how to resolve that conflict in a mature way um, to keep yourself safe, to keep your coworkers safe and to keep the family safe as well. And then um, queer people are also drawn to jobs that have a high level of um, autonomy. So that would be like an embalmer, right? Like you can work by yourself in a room by yourself, kind of manage your own day to day. And um, so that all makes sense. And then I started looking around and realizing that as people at being out in the death care space made other queer folks at conferences and as I was making connections and networking, made other queer folks comfortable telling me like, oh, I'm gay too, but my boss doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Or I don't feel like I can be out in the space because I feel like I might be fired because it's so stigmatized. So simultaneously, we are drawn to these jobs and we don't feel safe in them. And that is what I am trying to change. I want everyone in the death care space to feel safe at work because it is an emotionally taxing job. And it is one of the most important jobs I think that you can do in this lifetime. As as you have said on my podcast before, it is a sacred job. It is a sacred space. And um, yeah, and I believe that everyone should feel safe to be their whole selves because we also have data to show that you do better work. Um, you are less likely to change jobs. Um, you are more likely to excel in your work and have less mental health issues, have less emotional health issues, have less prolonged grief yourself. If you experience a loss, um, if you feel safe in your day to day, and that includes at work. So beautiful. Um, so, so many things. Firstly, (laughs) you tapped on a word that I had heard before, but didn't really understand. So maybe you could shed some light on it, which is the two spirits, uh, person. And the way I was introduced to that concept was through Lovecraft country on HBO. Mm -hmm. And one of the supporting castmates was a two-spirited person and they had these phenomenal gifts and they could shape shift and Mm. just do these things but of course me being who I am I looked at it on such a deeper level and when you said that my face lit up because I can definitely see the merging or the 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 presence of both 100% masculine, even though neither, none of us are 100% masculine or feminine, but (laughs) there being such a hyperactivity of both of those spiritual energies Mm -hmm. 
inside, I don't want to say trapped, but encompassed in one person, that there is no line of demarcation. So could you go a little bit further into what that means if you're familiar? Um, I, I can't a little, I don't feel comfortable being an authority on this topic because I am not Native American and I don't want to speak for indigenous populations at all. Like that is not my place as a white settler at all. I just want to bring awareness to, um, the nuances, um, that those cultures might have when talking about queerness and the history of queerness in those cultures before white settlers came to the United States and, you know, really destroyed a lot of culture and, um, yeah, did atrocities. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so two spirit, I believe is rooted in, um, the perception of if someone in um a native community is queer they they have language around yes you you hold um a, a masculine and a feminine energy um in tandem and i mean there were it, it was what in modern day society we call well, trans people would have been included in that as well someone um amab or assigned male at birth you know, presenting more feminine or vice versa, someone AFAB assigned female at birth, presenting more masculine, or even just choosing a same-sex partner to live with and love. Um, all of that would have been included in the two-spirit um, name, depending on which nation you're from and which tribe you're from. Um, it it varies and it's very different and it's a very different definition um, from, from culture to culture because Native American and indigenous cultures before, I mean, even now, of course, they're, they're thriving still, but before, you know, white folks got here, um, where it was a bunch of diverse nations with their own cultures and their own um, philosophies and their own lifestyles. And so um, yeah, I am not an expert and I will not speak to details about that at all. Just really don't feel comfortable representing those populations. I just want to give visibility to that identifier under the queer umbrella. For sure. One of the most um, powerful things someone can say to me is that I'm not an expert and I don't know. So I have so much more respect for you <laughs> based on that response than I did going into this conversation, which was already top notch. Yeah. And I love that your work basically is grounded in making people feel safe in who they are. And that's something that I observed about you when we met it in NDF, in the, yeah, in FDA. All, all these letters, everything. All these letters. I know. <laughs> and that brings up another point that I'll touch on in just a second. But, um, I watched, I sat back and watched, um, you walk into a open, space and people just be drawn to you. And then when I attended the LGBTQIA plus mixer that you hosted um, the night before we all went home, I just watched and I was an amazed, I was amazed by how authentic everyone was in that room. That was the moment when I feel like I saw everyone's authentic self. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you're at a conference we all have on our professionals head and we're trying to make connections and we're trying to, you know, impress our colleagues basically. But at your mixer or your party that you hosted that evening, everyone just seemed to be being themselves. And I love that. 
And I don't know if I've had the chance to tell you that. So I just, I wanted to share that with you. Thank you so much. That, that, I mean, that's, that's why we did it. I I hosted that mixer with um, Dr. Sarah Murphy and Tim McClune, my two dear, dear friends. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to make a space within, you know, this professional place where it's like you, even if you don't feel like you can be your whole self um, at your job, like we see you, we support you. We have been there you know, this is your community. And I just, I feel really strongly that that community saves lives. You know, I mean, even here in my, my personal life in Santa Fe, um, I helped found and direct and perform in an all queer burlesque troupe, which is focused Mm -hmm. around making, you know, queer community and creative expression for, for, and building community here. Um, and, and it's, it's been really powerful. I've met so many wonderful, beautiful people. I don't think I would have in Santa Fe, um, had this community not existed. And, um, yeah, the, I mean, it's my family. You find, you find your chosen family through community building and, and that's what I want to do in the death care space as well. So, yeah. And you're, you're doing it. Um, believe it or not, you're, you're doing it. Um, (laughs) thank you. So, you talked about autonomy and how important autonomy is to not only queer people, but everyone in today's world. Um, the pandemic has allowed people to work from home, which is, has in- increased the level of autonomy that we have on a daily basis or just put things in priority for us because we a lot of people are coming to the realization that, hey, this thing isn't forever and I want to do what I want to do with my life. And a big part of that for me is I want to do with what I, what I want to do with my body, especially after I die. Mm-hmm. And as a death care professional, we don't always have the privilege or the insight into how a person identifies mm-hmm. when they come into the funeral home. Mm-hmm. And I've been in situations and I'm sure that you've heard horror stories about someone coming in and presenting some way, a a certain way, and then we have to remove their clothes and we find out that they aren't what they present as, and I hope I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit because I I'm trying to be sensitive to the language. I get you. So they, they are how they present, right? They're not, right. um, they do not identify with, um, the gender typically assigned to their anatomy. There you go. Yes. Perfect. Um, or we are aware of this and the family, right. the next of kin, those that have the autonomy over how they will pre- be presented mm-hmm. at the end of life, don't agree with the way that they are, who they are in life. Um, what are you and Death Curious doing to educate and inform and make this a more comfortable conversation? Because like, even now having this conversation, I'm terrified I'm going to say the wrong thing and be offensive and it's tripping me up, you know? Yep. So, Yes. I Well, first of all, speaking to that, um, a very wise friend on my podcast once told me, and that wise friend is you, um, <laughs> that you don't never be afraid to make a mistake. Right. Because I like you are, you are doing your best and you're trying to like meet trans folks where they are in starting the conversation. And that is so appreciated because it's the conversation and the visibility that we need, like getting the nuances, right. will come with time. It's something that we learn. Right. So just thank you for that. And don't worry. I'll help you. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, yeah, this is a huge problem in the trans community specifically. Um, and well, uh, yeah, so, so I will go into a bit more of like the repercussions first and then talk about like what we can all do. So, okay. um, so yeah, when, if someone has not medically transitioned, which means they have not had gender affirming surgeries or even people who are not on HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy. Um, yeah, it can, if someone is not intimately familiar with the trans community and doesn't have access to the family of choice or the people who were actually closest to a trans person in their life. And like, for example, a family of origin who only knew this person pre-transition and didn't, you know, accept them in their full identity is who is making decisions. Um, this person can be non-consensually degendered, which means like if let's for say, let's, for example, say there's a trans feminine person, uh, someone who has transitioned, um, into, a feminine identity and has long hair and comes in in a dress. And then the family insists that the hair is cut. There's no makeup. There's no nails. Um, they're put in a suit, right? Um, that's not honoring who that person was. And I know that funerals are for the living, right? But it's also not honoring the people who loved that person for who they were. Um, and oftentimes, if the chosen family isn't in touch with the family of origin, people go for years, just like, where did my friend go? They're not answering their phone. They don't know that their friend has died. And, and we can really experience complicated grief, prolonged grief, disenfranchised grief in the queer community if like we just don't know what happens to a loved one because their family of origin doesn't want us included, doesn't want us there, or doesn't know who we are. And, um, that is something I'm working to change because I think a lot of funeral professionals, even if you're not in the queer community or familiar with the queer community, if you learn about these things and have some tools in, in your back pocket for if this situation comes to your funeral home, how do I, um, make sure that everyone in this person's life is notified? How can I serve the grieving family of origin? Who's also dealing with, you know, all the pain from a ruptured relationship, as well as allow the people who love this person for who they were to have a memorial experience. That's meaningful to them. Um, this is why I highly recommend working with celebrants because, um, celebrants interview extensively people in the person's life and, um, are really good at crafting, um, ceremonies that, are really honoring the deceased person for who they were. So, um, so we'll recommend that, but, but yeah, and in death curious and, and in my work in death care, I am working really hard to educate queer people and the queer community on the importance of having a death plan in place and all the legal documents that you need in place for who is in charge of your funeral, who needs to be notified, who you want to do what, how you want to look, what your pronouns are, all of that to be absolutely set in stone while you're alive now. It's something I've started working on for myself. I'm 35 years old. I'm not going to die of old age anytime soon, but who knows what's going to happen. Right. And, um, I it's, it is a passion of mine to educate as many young queer folks, as many queer folks in general, as I can 
on what to do. And, you know, that includes some, maybe making a power of attorney. Maybe that includes um, setting an advanced directive. Maybe that includes setting um, like a funeral um, executive, um, which are all legal documents that you can, you know, and it varies state by state. So look up what the rules are in your state and, you know, go to a lawyer and get all of that in place beforehand. And then make sure that whoever is going to be, um, your funeral home has all that on file as well. Um, and then we can get into disposition methods, right? Like, what do you want to, do you want to be, you know, natural organic reduction or parting stones or whatever else it is um, that you want actually done to your body after, after you die. But yeah, that's, that's what I'm really trying to do is, is get the word out to young queer folks who may not be thinking about this or who it may be really hard to think about this because I mean, the young trans community, particularly trans feminine people, um, experience an extremely high rate of, of um, well, suicide, but of homicide. Um, it's called trans femicide, um, particularly in like sex worker populations, uh, particularly in lower income and BIPOC which means um, Black, Indigenous, person of color populations. Um, so just the more intersectional a person's marginalization is in the trans community, the more likely they are to be murdered, which is really, really messed up. Um, and so educating all of us on how to take care of each other, what to do if someone we love passes, um, that's really important. Yeah. I, I wish, and maybe there is, and you could let me know if there is, um, I wish there was a book that, let me and other death care professionals know the correct language to use when mm -hmm. describing anatomy. Like you mm -hmm. said, gender affirming reconstructive surgery. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that term before. And mm -hmm. it, it seems so appropriate, but I would never have thought to even structure those words together. I wish there was a resource where I could just check in not only with myself, but then be able to communicate words of support to family and mm -hmm. to funeral goers and uh, my grief clientele, because this is so important. Well, Joelle, you're giving me some ideas. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Being so immersed in the community, I, I often take for granted that people know what I mean when I say AFAB, right? Mm -hmm. Assigned nope. female at birth is inappropriate because trans folks don't, it sometimes is very painful to be like, um, when, when he was a woman or before he became a man, because trans folks, we are who we are, regardless of what our body is or looks like we are who we are inside. Right. And so when you were a man can be really triggering, can be really traumatizing and can be really hurtful. So we have things like AMAB assigned male at birth, you know, it's what you were assigned. It's not who you are. And then, yeah, we have things like, instead of calling it sex change operation, right? It's again, that implies going from one to the other kind of willy nilly. It's like, it's affirming who you are. Gender affirming surgery affirms who you are. And, and it's a lot of language and it's a lot of learning, but, you know, compassion and empathy are really, really important parts of humanity. and. And folks who are marginalized and folks who are stigmatized deserve that in all areas of their life. And, you know, it's the same thing as like, 
And like with the pronouns, right? Some people are like, I don't understand they, them pronouns. It's like, I'm not asking you to understand, just asking you to use them. It's like someone with a really complicated name. I don't understand that name, but I'm going to use it because that's who you are. And um, yeah, it's just about like respecting someone's humanity. So I would, I would love to put that resource together. Maybe that's an ebook for now, but um yeah, I would, you're giving me so many ideas because I think, I think it would be, I think people would use it if it was out there. I think you're right. So I think it's a book and a, a continuing education course, or just mm-hmm. a, a course period, because it's, I don't want to say it's uncomfortable, but it's definitely a learning curve. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have information, how do we evolve? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, and as someone who now is out as trans, um, I have an ex-partner who, when we started dating, they presented as a woman and came out as a trans man while we were together. And I'm going to, I'm in the community. I know the lingo, but because this person, it, it was like an intimate connection. I misgendered them for like the first week after they came out because it was just habit and they were really patient with me and I did better. Right. And that's, it's not about never messing up. It's about intention. And it's about that effort that you put in to learn and do better. So yeah, education is the way. I imagine that as someone is transitioning after having a gender affirming reconstructive surgery, Mm -hmm. that there's a level of grief that's experienced for the persona that they've moved throughout the world with knowingly or unknowingly attached to their genitalia or anatomy. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we as individuals support those that may be experiencing that type of grief? Is there a word for that type of grief? Mm. Is there a word for that? What I'm describing yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so complex. There's not, there's not one word that I know of. And, and often gender affirming surgeries are just that they are affirming and they are joyful and for the person getting them right mm-hmm. now, the person, the people who might be grieving in the time of a trans person going through gender affirming surgery might be that family of origin, right? Even if they're supportive, even if they're on board, it's like, oh, my child is changing their body and and changing their name. And like, there is some, some kind of, you know, um, grief associated with that, but, but especially if the family knows the person and, and knows that like what a joyful experience and an affirming experience that can be. I mean, yeah, I don't, grief is, is not the primary emotion we're talking about, right? You know, because as someone living in a body that you don't identify with, that you dissociate from, that um, you have dysphoria about, right? Changing that body so that you feel at home in it is is like a, an exciting and, and peaceful situation. The difficulties are financial, um, our social stigma, our even stigma from doctors who are performing surgery. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I have seen accounts online. Thank God. None of no one in my community who's had gender affirming surgery has experienced this, but of actual like prejudice and stigma from doctors who like let infections go because they don't believe a trans person who's in pain or, um, you know, things like that. And 
like life-threatening situations because of trans discrimination. And so, I mean, so those are more of the, like the, the difficult issues along with gender affirming surgery. Um, that's not to say no one grieves their past self, right? Um, I firmly believe that that every human being experiences like little deaths of the self and rebirths throughout their life, right? Like we all change. Um, if there's one thing I know about this life, it's that nothing is static, right? Like not even ourselves, not who we are. We're constantly growing and changing. And just like, just like the plants around us are constantly growing and going through cycles and changing. I mean, on a genetic level, every seven years, every cell in our body is different and has remade itself right in this cycle. And so this opens up a larger conversation for me around embracing grief as a natural part of life mm-hmm. in many different aspects. Right. right. Um, and, and how important it is, you know, I talk a lot about death avoidance, but grief avoidance is also something that's very ingrained in our culture and keeps us from emotionally processing things that we need to in a healthy way. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I would say is just, yeah, don't avoid that grief. It's Okay as a trans person, as you're transitioning to be like, Oh, I'm a past self is go- being put to rest. And, um, even if you are very excited and joyful about the direction you're going, you're going in, um, grief is grief. is okay to experience, you know? Um, so let's talk about the families that are impacted by the death of someone who presents trans for a second, or I'm sorry, someone who is trans mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, a second. That's right. Um, yeah. How do we as death care workers support those families in their grief, Mm -hmm. struggling with their perception of that person's identity? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a complex question, right? And because we don't ever want to disenfranchise someone's grief, even if in my personal opinion, like they are being wrong in their perception of someone. Right. Um, and so I think continuing to use the person's correct pronouns and by correct, I mean, what that person identified as and asked for regard and just not engaging in, if a family's like they were a man or they were a woman. You just be like, okay, let's move on. And just, just not engaging in those conversations and not getting into those arguments is what I would suggest because a, that family is going to be activated B the family. This is not the time to change their mind and make them agree. Right. And so just saying, you know, okay, and let's move on to the next thing. Like what's the next step in arrangements? What's the next step? Um, still offering all of the things that, that we should in grief support mirroring eye contact, um, you know, like all of those things to support someone who's grieving those families still deserve. Right. Um, but this is not the time nor the place to be a social justice warrior and try and convince a family that they are wrong even if like me, you believe that they are, if they don't accept someone for, for who they are. Um, it, yeah, it's just, it's hard. It's really complex. I went to the association for death education and counseling conference last year, and there was a whole panel on this about how do we, so as, as grief practitioners support the family of trans people when they're being quite frankly, assholes about it, you know? 
And, um, and there, no one came away with like an answer. It was just, you know, give them the respect they deserve as grieving people. Um, use your skills to support them. Don't affirm their beliefs, but also don't engage, you know? And I think, well, I know I've, I've been in this situation before working in Atlanta. I mean, we serve a very diverse clientele on so many levels, but for me, it was extremely difficult because I'm, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm extremely protective of the deceased that are in my care. Yes. Extreme, like mama bears. Yes. Yes. And it was to the point where I almost did not want to serve the family. And Mm -hmm. I realized that I had to put my ego in check because it wasn't about me, Mm -hmm. but that person and their family and bridging that connection that had been lost Mm -hmm. long enough for me to get the job done, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was very difficult. And again, I wish there was a resource that I could have turned to. But thinking on the professional side, I've also witnessed, unfortunately, where professionals have made inappropriate comments and jokes and mm-hmm. just had conversation that was disgusting right. in these situations. And is there a, other than our funeral boards and our state boards, is there some place to report that type of activity? And how do you suggest if you're I mean- comfortable? we, we handle that. Yeah. I mean, I would, that's, that is a form of harassment, even if the person is deceased. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it could be seen as harassment or traumatic. Like what if, what if one of their loved ones heard that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and this, this, this is a perfect example of how the trans population and the queer population, um, are indeed marginalized populations, right? Like, like trans folks are still often like the butt of jokes, the punchline, um, their identity is seen as like a joke and that's not okay. We are people. Um, and yeah, I mean, I report that to any human rights group, you know, I mean, ACLU, like what any human rights group who supports like queer rights and trans rights would jump on that, you know, um, and would probably, if it was documented or recorded, like that could be a lawsuit. I mean, as it should be. And yeah, because, and especially with trans folks, like over-sexualization is just some, uh, something that, that we face more than, um, than cis populations. Um, and cis is just a word for someone who is not trans. That's, that's all that is. Um, CIS, it, um, has a, I believe a Latin root in a word for same. So it's just like the same as your body. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and, and that's just never going to be okay. Even if, and especially if it's a deceased person in the care of a funeral home to make jokes or make comments about that. And I I would recommend reporting in those situations. And, you know, and I also, you know, circling back a little bit to like your experience, like you were saying with that family that it made you almost not want to serve them. Like, I think in that situation, you know, it's also, it would be fine to, if inappropriate comments were made or, um, you know, violent or abusive comments were made or the family was being, you know, extremely um, antagonistic, it's okay as a funeral professional to say like, look, I support the deceased person in their identity. I feel like it's important for us to respect them in their death and at this time. And if you're not able to do that, maybe this isn't the funeral home for you. You know, I mean, 
yeah, I, I, maybe that's not the (laughs) textbook way to handle it, but I think that, you know, that family might be better served somewhere else. The hesitation I have is that the deceased person would not be served better somewhere else. Right. That I would, I would be very hesitant to hand over the body of a trans person to a funeral home that I suspected or knew wouldn't respect their identity. Like I would not do that. So, so that is, it's a challenge to, to toe that line between dealing with a disrespectful family and caring for that deceased person the best that you can. So, yeah. So Alexandra Joe, where can we learn more about death curious about Mm -hmm. parting stone and all the amazing things and eventually where we'll find these amazing resources, books, e-courses, continued yes. education courses yes, that you're yes. going to create. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, so Parting Stone, is, we have a website. We also have socials for Parting Stone. Um, you can learn more at our website. You can learn more on Instagram and um, we have a TikTok as well. And then Death Curious is primarily on TikTok. We also have an Instagram. And, um, it's just at death curious and we'll have a monthly newsletter starting sometime in 2023. And I will tell you how to sign up for that on the socials. And then my death care decoded podcast is this week is the big transition week. We are uh, rebranding to be death curious so that we can expand a little bit more into just discussions about death. And it's all encompassing and multifaceted form instead of just being focused on death care professionals and like growing businesses and stuff like that. Um, so, so stay tuned. The next episode is going to be that announcement and a little bit more about why we are transitioning and expanding our, uh, spectrum and our scope a little bit. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and for educating me and being so patient and open to just letting me ask questions and explore and make mistakes and fumble. Like you have no idea how much comfortable and pray that our listeners find comfort and education in what you've shared. Thank you so much, Alexandra Joe. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the death and grief talk podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the grave woman, you can visit our website, www.thegravewoman.com live life, love hard, We'll talk to you next time.